You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Shane Jones is back as the New Zealand First MP. The top four on New Zealand First list are all Maori, and Shane, of course, is one of them. But he's not some weak need woke womble, so let's see what he says about politics in general, and I'll hit him up on what he thinks about congestion charging too. This could be entertaining. He joins me now. Welcome back to The Crunch, Shane. Good afternoon. Hey, greetings, folks. Kia ora from the far north. Obviously, we are uh, eagerly anticipating the successful outcome of the coalition negotiations, but as everyone has been told, they're covered in a cone of silence and it would be an act of treachery to uh, bust that cone. But look, there's a heck of a lot happening and some of it very um, sad and uh, quite debilitating out here in the community. Mm. Uh, so you're looking forward to cracking a few heads, aren't you, Shane, when you get back in, into Parliament? Yeah, you know, it's not just the bureaucracy, uh, the ethos, uh, certainly in our region in Northland, has deteriorated. I mean, nowhere was this more evident <clears throat> than this wretched crime that a couple of lowlifes committed uh, up here in the Bay of Islands where the Māori Battalion Museum, which is located on the National Treaty of Waitangi grounds, uh, was the site of a, of a grievous example of um, thievery where a, an art piece, I guess you'd say a taonga, an heirloom, was stolen by a young couple who were using their child to help um, effect this uh, thieving. But sadly for them, the whole incident has been caught on uh, CCTV. It's in the hands of the police, but it's a message to the North. If we let this feral, lawless uh, type of cockroach mentality spread, then we're going to ruin it in the North for all the good Bano who supported the erection of the Māori Battalion Museum, and we must not let these isolated examples and these cockroaches blight the name of uh, the good Māori of the North. Well, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? We're seeing, or we've seen over the last six years, this uh, rise in these type of crimes. They're rather shameless, uh, especially in Auckland. You're seeing, you know, ram raids and violence and uh, all of this nonsense, and the previous government had a, an attitude of it's okay, uh, where they just misunderstood, and you know we need to give these people some hugs. But what we actually really need to do yeah. is give 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 them a bit of uh, old fashioned justice. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's one of the motivations I think as to why people. Uh, flocked to the cause of the current parties that are mm. um, endeavouring to put together a government. But look, I've I, I got to remind everyone, this doctrine of decolonisation, which has been popularised by the Green Party and the Labour Party, yeah. has no place in the day-to-day -day lives of Kiwis. The uh, decolonisation, United Nations, uh, Indigenous rights, and all of that... Uh, witches brew will only end up dividing, will only end up polarizing, and will end up weakening the bonds that define us as Kiwis. And 
uh, people are taking advantage of that. People are using that type of ideology to excuse modern-day uh, woeful behaviour. I mean, how come the, the 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 Green Party consistently rails against people who are dead and who can't answer for what they did in, in their period of time of history, but the people who are alive doing uh, wicked things they're continually excusing their behavior. It's it's bizarre. It's a type of pathology, and the less we see of it, the better I'm going to feel. We're seeing that from the from Te Pāti Māori as well. It's quite grating and quite racist, the rhetoric that's coming out of the likes of Rawari Waititi and Debbie Nawira Packer, where we see this ridiculous situation like they appear in debates and they talk about the National Party being pale, male and stale. And then, you know, other politicians being pale, male and stale. And then you get a politician who wins his seat, right? Cameron Brewer, for example, um, not a bad guy. Um, I've known him for a, a number of years, good mate of Banksy's. And he says, jokingly, the pale, male and stale has won this electorate. And there's Radio New Zealand getting all outraged and talking about the National Party being under the hammer uh, for its lack of diversity. And, and I'm sitting here thinking, well, hang on a second, we, we just had an election and everybody had party lists, the ACT Party, New Zealand First, National Party, and the voters said we kind of like those three and voted in a majority of people that wasn't all woke and womble-like with the sort of, you know, rhetoric. And, I, and it just staggers me that they're allowed to get away with it, the, both the media and the politicians that are, are hurling these things around. Mm, I think Winston nailed it when he said, look, the 14th of October and the special votes had mm. delivered a mandate and have delivered a legitimate result. Now, it's, it's, it's not only the example that you've um, identified, but Debbie Packer, she marshaled the resistance against the Iron Sands initiative off the coast of Taranaki. Mm. And one of the most uh, egregious things was that the courts decided to agree with their analysis that there was some sacred custom or tikanga that should be applied 37 kilometres off the coast of Taranaki, many metres below the ocean, extracting iron sands. Now, the fact that the courts are doing that only emboldens and empowers that anti-development, anti-capitalistic, and anti-growth agenda. And we're going to count. We're going to have three years of those banshee-like calls designed to obstruct and, quite frankly, erode the confidence of overseas people maintaining their level of interest in terms of investing in our forestry sector, our natural resources sector, our infrastructure sector. And there's always been a tradition of a mix of local and international capital. Uh, for example, most of the pine trees growing in New Zealand are owned by um, foreign interests. Yeah, and I, and I think that's the real danger. And, and uh, sadly, that type of um, anti-growth ideology and that type of um, sort of midget-like thinking has been cloaked in the in, in, in the Korowai of Maoridom. But in actual fact, they don't represent exclusively Māori. They've got 87,000 votes. And many of those 87,000 votes themselves don't even come from Māoridom. So we're going we're gonna to hear uh, lots of loud noises and lots of banshee behaviour 
and no doubt in Parliament, but most of that volume will be inversely related to their ability to influence what needs to take place, which is to reset the economic, social and uh, development trajectory of New Zealand. New Zealand is rich in natural resources. I mean, I I remember you standing on the stage holding your, your head in your hands when Jacinda Ardern announced that we were going to no longer uh, explore for oil and gas. And, uh, you, you know, it's kind of famous, the look that you had on your face. You had to do it because, you know, you were a, a, a minister and that was the decision that the Prime Minister had made. But it's a, a myopic decision that's cost this country probably billions and billions of dollars of investment. Are we going to be able to reverse some of that? Well, um, obviously the National Party have a campaign for a reversal. I went down to New Plymouth and um, stood shoulder to shoulder with them. The uh, the decision that was taken when it was five or six years ago, that's now come and gone. The most important thing, I think, for Kiwis when they look at um, energy and electricity is are we managing the risks and is our supply secure? Mm. Because I know that Megan Woods, she did initiate a body of work um, in the South Island. And in fairness to the person that's been leading it, Keith Turner, he's arguably New Zealand's most well-known um, energy uh, strategist. But whether or not that project survives, I mean, that'll be up to the new government. But the most important thing is we've got to keep the lights on and the people that are um, antagonistic about further natural resource development or even the maintenance of the current coal mining operations in New Zealand, you know, are hypocritically silent every time a truckload of Indonesian coal rumbles down the uh, southern motorway into the Waikato. And I mean, that's one of the dirty little secrets of hypocrisy amongst the Pharisees of the climate change movement. We've got many of the resources within our own country, and we've got our young people all departing in many cases to Australia to dig up Australia, yet we're endowed and blessed with our own mix of natural resources. I mean, look at that case yeah. over there in, uh, in the Waikato. I mean, they, they want to put two uh, largely unseen, unknown pipes in the ground. This is this uh, Oceania yes. uh, mining interest. They've been given authority to do it on a public road a publicly owned road. The Hauraki District Council has given them authority to do it. And now we've got people uh, not only attacking it, but saying it's going to destroy the environment of the frog. I think it's called Hershey's frog or a name like that. The reality is the wild pigs are eating those frogs every single day of the week. Captain Cook is consuming, Captain Cookers are consuming the little rare frog. You can't blame the mining industry if in actual fact there are forestry trucks rumbling around that part of the country. I'm sure yep. occasionally they run a frog over. So, I mean, I'm, I'm confident that uh, once uh, the new, our new system is bedded in, that there'll be a lot more balance and common sense. And people can have confidence that they'll actually be able to bring their children up and afford to live in regional New Zealand. Well, I mean, that's the thing. In re we've got oil everywhere, you know, including in Northland. We've got coal everywhere. And we seem to have these people that are saying, no, that all has to stay in the ground. And meanwhile, we're importing all of that stuff. And, you know, I can remember back in Muldoon's days, everybody criticised the building of the Clyde Dam and they criticised the building of Motunui and they criticised 
you know, the, the extension of Marsden Point. Everyone opposed what Muldoon was doing, but it was rather far-sighted in retrospect when we sit here and, and all of these wombles that are driving around in a cloud of smug in their electric cars are having those electric cars powered by all of those projects that Robert Muldoon built. Yeah, I mean, the, the resilience of the country, I'm sure, was a motivation for Prime Minister Muldoon all those decades ago. Mm. And uh, the importance of resilience, it hasn't diminished, mate. I mean, we do have rare earth minerals in New Zealand. Uh, we just probably haven't had a mandate. Uh, we haven't been encouraged uh, in terms of whoever's the government of the day to work with industry and uncover what's the full potential. But... Yeah. Look, I encourage everyone to go and look at, they'll probably put themselves to sleep, but go and look at our economic data. There's a thing called the current account deficit means you're not exporting enough and you're continually importing things into your country and you have to go into debt in order to afford those things. Well, we're going to have to take a, a, a significantly different approach so that we extract more value from uh, nature's bounty, which surrounds us. And there's only 5 million of us, although I have to say... I was astounded how quickly our population has gone from 5 billion to 5.2 million. Yeah. And I presume a lot of them are short-term uh, migrants. And sadly, though, we are continuing to lose a lot of our young Kiwis. We're certainly between the age of you know, 20-odd up to uh, late 30s, early 40s. And I put that down to a deterioration in the ethos of the country and yep. also a um, shrinkage of um, economic opportunity. And we need to... Uh, enlarge those opportunities and reward people and make it worthwhile to continue to be committed to living in the regions or wherever you want to live in New Zealand. If you look at New Zealand's history, we've got a reputation as a can-do nation. You know, we've had some amazing innovators, the Hamilton jet engine for boats. Uh, we've got guys who have invented motorbikes. Uh, we've got Fisher and Paykel, this Fisher and Paykel story. We had to invent things because we basically lived at the arse end of the world. And if we wanted these things to be in the first world states, we needed to do it ourselves. But it seems that progressively over the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, we've become a can't-do nation. And we have a lot of people out there who are telling us what we can't do. And nobody's telling us what we can do or should do. Is New Zealand first going to try and change that attitude to get that can-do yeah. attitude back? Yeah, I think all the parties have a shared commitment to declogging the system. Mm. I mean, whether it's the building industry, whether it's road making, uh, other types of infrastructure, the statutory approvals process has become so bogged down that it's actually now um, holding the economic fortunes of the country to ransom. Let's just look at Mount Messenger. Uh, Mount Messenger yeah. is a road in an obscure part of New Zealand, northern Taranaki. Yep. I'm advised that there's about four to five years of Supreme Court litigation before that road can go ahead, only because of a tiny group who themselves are standing against not only NZTA, but they're standing against the Ngati Tama people who live around there. And this is a case where the sensible Māoris actually want the road built tomorrow. But no, you've got this tiny and flexible and transited group with no mandate who believe that their value hierarchy is of greater importance than the rest of the country. And just that single example shows 
why the whole approvals process and law around infrastructure has to be revisited and has to be inverted. We've got to stop these tiny minorities and their semi-religious uh, fueled rhetoric from holding the rest of us to ransom. That, that Mount Messenger group have been in the media the last couple of days moaning about the price of pies being supplied to the workers on Fridays. I mean, that's how petty they are. And it's just holding up things. But I look at the real culprit of all of this and lay the blame fairly and squarely at the feet of two people, Simon Upton and Jeffrey Palmer, because they're the architects of the Resource Management Act that is stopping development. If you look at um, an alternative, what we've got to do, in my view, and certainly in building, uh, we've got to restore authority and opportunity back to people to just get on and do things. Now, housing has so many obstacles. I was given an example the other day up north that they had to have a geotech report on where they were putting a house. Now, the place where the house is going is surrounded by a whole lot of other houses. And that geotech report adds delay. And then these... Uh, Building inspectors, they have to come back and do endless types of inspections. And what we're better off doing is just trusting. If you've got a registered builder, you should have just maybe one inspection and trust him, trust the plumber, trust the drain layer, trust the sparky. They can self-regulate their work. And if it uh, buggers up, then they're personally responsible. Uh, I, I genuinely feel that that's the type of uh, reset that a lot of um, uh, Kiwis want to see take place. And presumably that's what... David Seymour and the ACT Party have in mind uh, with their deregulatory drive. Uh, I, I think that there's definitely a case and it's overdue for that type of um, liberalisation. Yeah, there's some real synergies, isn't there, between the ACT Party's policies and New Zealand First. And you know, from my perspective, looking on at watching the negotiations, it seems there's been a significant thawing of the relationship between uh, David Seymour and Winston Peters. And David Seymour's perhaps realised that the two of those parties, the ACT Party and New Zealand First, can actually get some things happening to force the National Party, which I've always described as the party of the status quo. They never want to actually do anything. They just want to manage it slightly more efficiently. Um, and it seems from the outside looking in that you guys are actually telling Christopher Luxon we want to do some things, we need to fix this country, and we're on the same page as this. Is that a fair assessment that I've just been observing from the outside? Yeah, I think that people should have confidence that the 6% and the 8% of the population that supported the two smaller parties, mm. it's not lost on us that, um, number one, that's a privilege to hold that level of support, but number two, that type of support has to be transformed into uh, robust and um, measurable activity. And if we just end up like Nick Smith and the others of the past, just putting layer upon layer. Like, I mean, the crowning folly was when Nick Smith introduced, uh, I think they're called pono whakahaere, or it's a Māori term that means to jointly organise things. But anyway, this was their attempt at that stage to uh, get councils to work um, with the local hapus but it only ended up constipating the system. It's ended up, uh, probably in many cases, 
people having to just load on more costs to get bog standard projects underway. And it's, it's, it not only does that give a very bad name to the vast majority of Māori who don't even know this stuff is happening, quite frankly, yeah. Yeah. but it enriches a tiny elite to manipulate those positions. I mean, I, I heard the other day that um, the Ngāti Whātua people in Auckland from um, Bastien Point, mm. they are now saying that because the current site of the Epsom Teachers Training College is becoming vacant due to restructuring within the Auckland University, and that site apparently, according to them, has a, has a name from Hawaii, therefore they should be entitled to buy it. I mean, this is the level of brown mail that we're now seeing. Just because uh, one tribe, and that, that tribe's fighting with all the other tribes of Thames and Hodaki and Auckland anyway, mm. uh, that, that's, that's a level of conflict I, I just cannot make sense of. Meanwhile, we've opened up the gates of immigration and heaps of people are coming from the rest of the world and they're just getting on with trying to make a life here in Auckland and New Zealand. Meanwhile, we've got these two tribal groups spending millions of dollars in the court system and now invoking um, ancient stories from Hawaii to prove that they've got an entitlement to take over some vacant land that is publicly owned. Now, that type of ideology and those types of excesses will allow to grow unchecked and it actually is not only um, undermining, but it's causing uh, people to say, mate, I've had a guts full of this country if it's going to be run like that. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's kind of a looter mentality. There's no actual value that's going into that. And it seems to be just being taken. And you're right. People are sitting there saying, this is ridiculous. I've even coined a term for it called peak Maori where we're sort of kind of, we're over this. There's these people that are making outrageous demands based on nothing but fairy tales. And it's refreshing to hear people like yourself and Winston and others saying, no, this is this is just bollocks. And we need to stop that. And this nonsense of co-governance. And then we had, you know, Toe Henry throwing his toys out of the cot a couple of weeks ago because Auckland Council didn't vote to have Maori wards, even though he's on the Maori statutory board and getting paid handsomely to do that. It's that looter mentality that's really annoying the vast amount of the population, both Maori and everybody else. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of that is traceable back to people believing that they have a statutory basis, they have a legal right to uh, perpetrate uh, this type of cultural looting. And that's what I mean. We've got to have a reset, a legal reset. See, my view is that when a hapu or a tribe has a Treaty of Waitangi settlement, then good. Get on with uh, developing whatever endowment you've got and develop the people and contribute to the nation. Mm. I have a very simple view about that. Now, other people have said, okay, now that the treaty has been applied to trying to uh, restore property rights, let's now uh, weaponize the treaty as a basis for carving up on the franchise of ancestry, access to health resources, social development resources. And then, oh, let's go even further. Uh, let's now uh, weaponize the treaty so that it is available to bludgeon and change and completely renovate the nature of our constitutional governance in New Zealand. That's what's happening with the Green Party. Yeah. That's what's been happening uh, with uh, the Māori Party, and it's certainly what's been driven 
by uh, Nanaya Mahuta of the Labour Party. So you've gone from property rights, uh, a, a quite a quite an awful experience of trying to reorder the health system on the basis of ancestry. And now you've got it uh, coming into whether or not a governance based on the ballot box and democracy is a system that should remain in New Zealand. I mean, it is such a mad and defective type of thinking. I have to pinch myself as to where on earth are we as a country if this is the overarching narrative that a group of politicians are now pitching and um, I think that the new government, and I think uh, Winston and myself, um, we're going to play a key role in challenging that and causing it to be washed away when the tide changes. I mean, that's the thing. We've got you know people like Willie Jackson saying, oh, yeah, well, democracy's overrated. We need to do this. And it's all based on a rather heroic assumption that the treaty was signed between Queen Victoria and disparate Maori tribes on an equal basis with the Empress of India, the head of the British Empire. And it's that's not what the treaty was, but there's this heroic assumption that it was this co-governance. It's come out of nowhere and, and the media have pushed it because they also had their public interest journalism fund that said they had to subscribe to that particular point of view and so you brainwashed a whole segment of society, a large segment of society who thinks that's what the treaty says. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not just being pushed um, by a, a small group of Māori academics. It's also in existence because of an echo chamber. And it's almost like there's a, there's a professional caste in New Zealand. I don't know whether they're bureaucrats or in the, judici- in the judiciary. It's like a type of self-flagellation that um, the country can't move forward until such time there's some massive park air atonement or some crazy idea. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is just moving on. There's only five-odd million of us here, and we're in a very isolated part of the Pacific. And yeah. um, look, I, I'm just astounded how far uh, this uh, falsehood has travelled and how far... They've managed to penetrate, really, the corridors of power, whether or not power is to be found in the narratives of the media or the recesses of the bureaucracy or even some of the unexplainable uh, decisions that the courts are coming up with. And uh, I've given you one example, an example that uh, you can't have mining off the coast of New Zealand unless some semi-religious Pharisees get together and define what's the appropriate Maori custom. It's absolute rubbish. I mean, what Māori custom are you talking about? You're 37 kilometres off the edge of one of the most treacherous parts of the New Zealand ocean environment. There's a reason they call it te moana tāpokapoka tāwhaki, the billowing rough ocean of tāwhaki. Now, anyone who's got the engineering smarts and the risk appetite to go out there and try and make money, I say good on them. And if there is a problem, those decisions ought to be made on the basis of economics and science. They should not be made on the basis of reprising versions of tikanga Māori. There's no tikanga uh, in Taranaki uh, related to extracting minerals 37 kilometres, God knows how many metres, under the ocean. 
in the fact that the court system, I mean, that's a political debate, okay? And yeah. people are entitled to have a view that, okay, politically and morally, we think we have a, a customary perspective that ought to um, hold sway. But in actual fact, the court has got no business importing those political debates or indeed even inventing space for those debates to trump science and economics. No wonder the country's current account deficits in the bloody doo-doo. Yeah, and the, and the other thing too is, I mean, take you for example, right? You, you uh, are all part Croatian, but it seems mm-hmm. that the only part of, of the makeup of people that's important is the Maori part and everything else can we'll just forget and ignore that, you know, you're part Croatian and Winston's part Scottish and, you know, all the rest of it. it we just forget all of that and we'll just label everybody Maori because of whatever percentage of DNA is there. It seems ludicrous that we're just ignoring all of the melting pot that exists in New Zealand that we all went along to get along and we were pretty happy about things up until about 10 years ago and then it all started getting nasty. And it, it staggers me that we've moved from that and, and I don't know how we can get back to that. Well, I think that, I mean, the debates that we were a part of those were the debates of uh, recovering rights and resources. Yeah. And, and they were noble pursuits. They were noble yes. pursuits because when you've got rights, then people are obliged to respect and enable you to protect your rights and use your rights, okay? Yeah. But this cultural renaissance journey has has ended up in, in weird spaces, not the least of which is changing the country's governance. And, and I, I kind of feel that we're approaching the high tide mark of that. I genuinely believe we'll be able to push it back. But I'll tell you what, it's going to be very hard to push back are the ingrained attitudes amongst too many of the hapu uh, leaders and the diet that's been fed to too many of our young people about a victimhood mentality. And that's going to be an extraordinarily challenging thing to reverse. But it has to be, mate, because no nation, no population can prosper unless we're all taught, incentivized, and encouraged to put into practice that old biblical adage by the sweat of thy brow. Yeah, exactly. Because we've got this attitude in New Zealand where we like to describe, you know, particular communities. They always talk about you know, the gay community or this community or that community and how they're vulnerable. And as a result of them being vulnerable, we now need to pour a lot of resources and and money and all of that into these vulnerable communities. But if you keep telling people they're vulnerable and essentially losers, it becomes self-fulfilling. Yeah, whether or not we've imported that rationalisation from the States, I, I, I haven't really dwelt on it far enough to work it out. But I'll tell you one thing. I was absolutely astounded when I read the court decision when the High Court judge enabled the visa allocated to Posey Parker to stand. You may recall there were people that went to court to prevent Posey Parker coming to New Zealand. Yeah. And um, at the time, there was quite a lot. There was a, great, there was a brouhaha about it. So I thought, I'm just going to have a look at that decision. I was astounded that the High Court judge, and it's old-fashioned, you tend to have a great deal of respect for the inherent jurisdiction of the High Court's part of our constitutional apparatus, and, mate, if you ever look at the language there, it plays uh, straight into the playbook 
that there are groups of uh, people, including those that didn't want Posey Parker into the country, who are extraordinarily vulnerable, and their well-being in every sense of the word was at stake. I mean, it was uh, it was a very disappointing decision. They got the right result, but uh, if you look at um, a lot of the language in the text, I, you know, I, I had a rather bloody sad feeling when I thought that uh, our High Court was even buying into the sense of victimhood. Well, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Because there is this sense of victimhood that there's vulnerable communities and they need to be protected from hurty words. You know, you think back on the days of Muldoon, he was called Piggy Muldoon by almost everybody. These days, you'd need to have a safe space and, you know, maybe a cuddle toy and, and a blanket. I don't know what's happened to society. You know, in 1944, we had 18-year-olds charging off landing craft into the beaches of Normandy into the face of machine guns and artillery and all of that. Nowadays, 18-year-olds need safe spaces, and we have to be mindful of their pronouns. It, it's it's bizarre yeah, that we've no, no, become it, weak. Uh, <laughs> so, look, yeah, anyhow, going forward, I'm going to try and maintain a, a strong focus on economic empowerment. And uh, I know it sounds a bit old-fashioned, um, reaching back as often we do. Um, plucking bits of Shakespeare, plucking wee verses out of the Bible, but boys, a lot of wisdom. When you boost your um, education, when you boost your confidence, you've got choices. And when you've got choices, you have the ability to uh, do substantial things with your life, the life of your family, the life of your household, the life of the community where you live. But Mm. if you wait endlessly to be fed with a spoon from Wellington, then sadly, your choices just went out the window. Well, that's the thing. I remember uh, Ronald Reagan said the nine most dangerous words in the English language are, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. <laughs> oh, well, there's a better government on the way, mate. <laughs> well, we look we look forward to it, uh, Shane, and thank you this afternoon for spending the time to talk to me. And let's hope you get in there and um, lay about the woke wombles in the bureaucracy. Okay, great to have the corridor. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. You never know what you're going to get with Shane, and he didn't disappoint. And I'm glad he's going to be shaking up the woke and the Wellington bureaucrats. Don't forget to send comments on Shane's interview to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR.